Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and it's going to be a wonderful hour with Dr. Mark Muska. Ask the professor so you know. Send your questions over, and we will address them. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. I got a lovely email from a listener earlier this morning I want to share with you guys. Her name? or is That's uh, the name is, is Mike. Oh. Yeah, his right. name is Mike. Welcome, by the way, Mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Nice to see your face on radio here. Yeah, it is nice. So he said he, that he had to stop uh, before work this morning, and he's walking out of the store, and there was a sort of a garbage can right in front of customer service that said, Angers. Now, it was written down on the side of the can, and he, obviously it was meant for hangers. <laughs> but oh. it's a garbage can with angers. And he said, you know, if we all throw away our angers and Ooh. see each other through the eyes of Christ... We still need wisdom, discernment in our dealings with the world, but we do need to see others as Christ sees them. Kind of throw your angers out. That's kind of fun, isn't it? That is kind of fun. It would be fun to have a picture of that. Yeah, it would be. So, Mike, thank you for that. Caption on that, yeah. All right, we're going to jump into something that came up a couple weeks ago from a listener named Jane, and I thought this was very insightful, and I sent this to you in advance because I've been chewing on this for a while. Have you? Yes, I have, by the way, and Mm -hmm. it comes right out of... John chapter 4. Yep, great chapter. Oh, I love this chapter. Let me see if I can get right to it here. And it talks about Jesus having a conversation with the Samaritan woman. Mm -hmm. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have (laughs) asked him, and he would have given you living water. That is called luring the woman. <laughs> I just think of the the worm just got lowered down in front of the fish. Yeah. Right. She is intrigued by that. She is. Yeah. But when it gets down to uh, verse 20 or 21, mm-hmm. uh, no, 26, when Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Mm-hmm. I am he. Mm-hmm. All right, that's pretty powerful revelation. Is that the first time that he revealed himself? Oh, I don't know. I mean, in John it may be, but yeah, in John. I, I'm not sure about all four Gospels. So I'd so, have to think about that. Now here comes the question. In the next verse, 27, it says, just then the disciples returned. Yeah. Just then. Mm-hmm. Like, didn't they just interrupt something pretty significant? At this point. Yes. They and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Mm-hmm. Was that kind of standard procedure that you would ask if you were talking to a woman? Well, it comes out right at the beginning with the woman, where Jesus asks her, woman, give me a drink. And that shocks her. Okay. How is it you, a Jew, ask me a Samaritan woman for a drink? They didn't even talk to each other. This is first century equivalent of the race things that we get going in our world today. Just real hatred. And this goes back 600 years between the Samaritans and the Jews. So deep set uh, hostility 
and hatred. So uh, Jesus surprises her by asking that question. So I, pr- I presume that the same kind of surprise is there with the apostles when they come back from town, that they're, they're puzzled. Wow, are you talking with a woman here? Mm-hmm. What, uh, what's the deal? So, But the content of the interruption, you know, you would think that this interruption at this point in the story would be a pretty important one. Oh, not necessarily. I okay. mean, it, 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 remember, narrative, you have dialogue taking place with people talking, and then hopefully the narrator is giving you context and telling you what's going on as well. And so with the written word, it's a little awkward at times, and this might be one of those places. But uh, John is just informing us here that uh, Jesus said something really significant here. And as he did, this is about the time the di- disciples showed up, and they're probably scratching their heads going, you know, what gives here with Jesus talking with this woman. Mm. So it's perfectly legitimate for him to include that narrative explanation of what's going on here uh, in the in the scene. So I don't see it as an interruption at all. It's just a narrative uh, explanation of what's happening. Uh, I think quite simply what John is saying is uh, that the disciples showed up and she split into town. And so I can even see them kind of looking at her behind, you know, looking behind themselves, looking at her going, boo, you know, what happened here? Uh, we've we've uh, promoted this wonderful series by Dallas Jenkins called the, the Chosen. And I loved the way they did the scene. It was the last uh, uh, episode of their first year. And uh, uh, this woman is... <laughs> Sounds like she's out of her mind. She's jumping up in the air and yeah, hey, wee, and yeah, and, you know, and just uh, shouting and everything. And so, if anything near that happened, it would have puzzled the disciples to say what's going on. So, I don't think that's bad. I really like though uh, this. Uh, Jane's got a future as a writer here. She really has a long email, and uh, she kind of figured it out for herself though. In, in the context here, there's more more going on than just between Jesus and this woman. And it's the same thing in chapter 3 with Jesus and Nicodemus, and then later in chapter 4 with Jesus and this royal official. And uh, uh, the the disciples are in the mix for this, too, and we're in the mix for this, because uh, these three stories of those three people, it helps us understand a lot about what it means to come to Jesus. And uh, this is part of that story. So uh, I, I uh, I think she realized that we can't just clog this up by saying, oh, this is an interruption. What does John think he's doing? This is terrible writing. He's a fisherman anyway. He's not a writer. And so he must have screwed this up. But uh, not at all. This mm-hmm. is this is very, uh, I think it's great storytelling, the way he puts it together. So we have to give these authors some artistic liberty to be able to describe things the way they're going to do it at the time they want to do it. And this in this case, maybe it's a little awkward, but it's nothing mm-hmm. to, to uh, worry about. Well, the more you look at the story, you think, uh, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything. And Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. It would have been lovely if... Well, look in your Bible, too. It's even more significant because that last word of verse 26 is in italics in your Bible. And that means the translators inserted it in there. Yeah. That literally he says, I am. And that comes in John's gospel several times. This is the best understanding we have for the name of God in the Old Testament, that he says in Exodus 3, I am that I am. And so uh, Jesus says this to her, that I am the Messiah, but he doesn't say the Messiah part, I am. 
Uh, he does the same thing in John 8, and the Jews are ready to kill him when he says to them, uh, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and they ridiculed him. You're not even 30 years old, and you're telling us you've seen Abraham? And he says, well, before Abraham was, I am. And <laughs> yikes, you know. In fact, I like to wonder if there's a even a further thing with that, because remember, Jesus spoke in Aramaic, most likely, which yeah. is a derivative of Hebrew. And you have to remember that the Jews never even said the name of God because they revered it. They didn't want to break, what is it, the second commandment, not to take the name of the Lord in vain. And so they figured, well, we can't do that if we just don't say his name. And so they would always say Adonai, or mm-hmm. the word for Lord, instead of this name for God. And I wonder if Jesus actually said the name of God here. Hmm. instead of saying Adonai. So that uh, that has potential. I, I hope there's reruns in heaven where we can watch this stuff. I, I would and, hope so, too. My, my friend on. Jeff Redorn has not left yet, which I've always, he's always welcome, but he's got something else to add, question Mark, to ask. So later in the story, it says that many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the mm-hmm. testimony yep. that he gave over the next couple of days. What does that say about it when it was his own people often didn't receive him, but the yeah. Samaritans now are? Yeah, uh, that... That tells you this is going to expand in a hurry. <laughs> that that uh, uh, John doesn't really focus on that, that quite as much. The one writer that really does is Luke. That he, over and over again, he makes it clear that all who wish to come to Jesus may come. doesn't matter your background, your ethnicity, your age, your intelligence, your job, who your parents are. None of that. If you wish to come to Jesus, you can come. And uh, that comes out here. These Samaritans are hungry. They're open. And uh, who cares about their ethnicity at this point? Mm. That is just irrelevant. So, But John really doesn't come back to that too much. That's not so much his main thing he's got going. He probably figured that Luke uh, said it well enough when he wrote that because uh, John most likely wrote this after Luke did his gospel. Mm-hmm. If you have a question for Dr. Mark Muska, let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. We'll take a little break when we come back. With Dr. Mark Mosca and my friend Jeff is Fedorin still here, which makes me happy. Be right back. Faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new sees I see all I have needed thy hand hath provided great is thy faithfulness Lord unto me that's Mark Muska's walk up song so glad to have him with me here if you've got a question for him it's ask the professor hour 877-933-2484 coming up next mark john 10:10 10, 10, the mm-hmm. thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy i came that they may have life and have it abundantly yeah how do we best understand this looks like we're dealing with a couple of words here uh, we've got life and abundantly one's a noun one's an adjective do sometimes people hear that verse and say, this is what I want it to mean or believe for me? And do Of we... course they do. Yeah. I mean, that gets you into all kinds of trouble. <laughs> uh, I yeah. try to correct people when they say, well, this is what this verse means to me. 
no, 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 this is the way I understand this verse, but that doesn't mean it means that for you and something else for me. Mm -hmm. There's only one meaning of that passage, and it's what God intended, and it's what the authors intended in writing. And so we all try to get to that, and sometimes we don't agree with what exactly that is, but heaven help us if we start saying, well, that's true for you, Bill, but this is true for me, yeah. then let's just, you know, close up shop. It's, it's you know, just have your little time with the Bible and, and probably waver from the truth. So, Well, let's dig into this just a little bit more, Mark. Yeah. Uh, so when Jesus talks about giving us an abundant life, yeah. he's not really referring to wealth or happiness or earthly success, is he? He's not talking about anything in this passage. Okay. This is the good shepherd passage, and he's contrasting what he does versus what the bad shepherds do or the okay. thieves do. And so he's, uh, I like the next verse here. He says, I came that they, the sheep here, may have life and have it abundantly. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So that's core, that because he lays down his life, we may have life. So we can look at the rest of the scripture, and it's all over the place that this idea of life is in the sense of what happens to us as people and the things internally and the friendship and relationship that we start with God because of what Jesus has done. And to put a Corvette into that uh, uh, discussion, it just it just doesn't fit. I mean, let's go back to Janis Joplin with, you know, oh Lord, won't you buy me Mercedes Benz? You know, I mean, it's that kind of thinking. <laughs> Uh, it just, just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I love what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you know, lay up your treasures in heaven where moth can't get it, thieves can't steal it, and it won't rust. You know, that's what true treasure is, to know God and to be able to uh, come, uh, come close to him. Mm. Thank you for that. All right, here's a paragraph from a Christianity, Christianity Today story. Uh-oh. I know, I know. I just want to get your take on it. Okay. Uh, there's a wide variance among Christians on the question of whether many religions can lead to eternal life in heaven or if their religion is the one true faith leading to heaven. Protestants are more than twice as likely as Catholics to say that their faith is the one true faith leading to eternal life in heaven, with yeah. half of evangelicals expressing this view. On the other hand, 44% of evangelical Protestants say that many religions can lead to eternal life in heaven. Yeah, and they, I think they write, write that and they realize there's a terrific tension there. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, I'm sure. What really underlies this bill is there's a, there is a stark reality that we have to face, that there are tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people that will never hear a decent explanation of the gospel. Uh, they might not even know the name of Jesus, uh, living in places around the world where the name of Christ is not named, and they don't have a short radio to listen to Transworld Radio or something like that. And so are they really lost? Are they really doomed, especially if they've been devoted to their own religion that they have? So it might be Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam uh, is the sincere Muslim doomed? And uh, uh, this th it's very difficult. And uh, because of that, uh, some really leading outstanding theologians have begged off from this idea that unless someone hears and puts their trust in the message of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, there is uh, 
a scant hope given for them in the Bible. You have some pastors, very prominent pastor, that thinks that there's chances to uh, hear about Jesus and put your faith in Jesus after you die when you're in this uh, uh, place of the dead. And so, uh, boy, you know, it's, I, I, have, I have sympathy on it in one sense because people are dealing with a really tough teaching in the Bible. But that doesn't mean that we start hedging on what the Bible says. And I know probably going to be people out here that listen to this and they're not going to like me and uh, write uh, emails and everything like that. And and that's fine because I understand it's not an easy uh, teaching. I still struggle with it myself in in, uh, an emotional sense, but that doesn't mean we can just uh, take the scriptures and, and shape it like we're massaging it to fit our sensibilities. It just, that gets us in trouble. Mark, are you a little surprised that 50, only 50% of evangelicals believe that Jesus was the only way? I mean, it seems a little low to me. You know, I don't put much in polls that unless <laughs> I can see the exact questions and the order they're given in and who exactly is being asked, uh, didn't the political system just wreck us in the last five years with that, with the validity of polls? Mm-hmm. I mean, they all screwed it up in mm-hmm. 2016. And they didn't get it much better in 2020, and now uh, they're making all these predictions. And I just kind of yawn and turn the page. Uh, it just so fifty uh, percent of evangel. What is even an evangelical anymore? And so uh, you got all kinds of things. Uh, Bill and I have you know chewed that rag a lot with yeah, each other <laughs> about the irreliability of unreliability of news media people to fairly represent things in the in the things that are going on in the world. So I feel helpless a lot of the time to have any kind of informed view on things. Mm-hmm. So. Mark, how should Christians understand God's anger? He is a a God that his uh, his anger is incited in many uh, situations and in many ways so that we call this the wrath of God and God is to be feared because of his sovereign power and his anger. The anger comes from the moral sense of who God is. He is a God who recognizes the right because he is the right. His very nature reveals to us what the right is. And so when people go against that, and openly rebel against him and then involve other people with that, his uh, wrath is incited. So uh, you can look at this, uh, one of the passages, just a very dark passage, and it's the same passage we talk about with this thing about Jesus being the only way, uh, is in Romans chapter 1, where uh, Paul says three times God gives people over to uh, impure thinking and then to uh, depraved minds uh, that they not only, they can't even tell right from wrong anymore. And he gives them over to that. And that does incite the wrath of God. Romans one eighteen, the wrath of God is incited against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people. So who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't think... I don't know. You know, Bill, we have to always take these things in context of everything of who God is. He is wrathful. He is also the definition of love and compassion, mercy, grace, patience, all of that. But that doesn't make him a hand-holding God that's just going to pat us on the head and say, poor you, you know, when we openly rebel against him and we do things that are hateful to him. Uh, That, to me, uh, I'm glad 
that he he extends his anger to me sometimes because I need that. I need to wake up and say, wait a minute. So, mm-hmm. All right. What is your biblical understanding of being able to humble oneself and what God is implying when he asks us to do that? Well, I'm, I'm going to take a second. You never give these in, in time for me to, I know. to go I, over I never give passages. you too much heads up. You're just a mean person I know I am. You know I that? Uh, but I love First uh, Peter 5 where uh, he talks about anxiety here and the worries of the world. And uh, a lot of people have this uh, uh, memorized First uh, Peter 5, 6, where he says, Therefore... Well, the therefore is there for a reason, and so we should read verse 5. He says, Younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then he says, Therefore humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Man, that is just something to even you know imprint on the inside of your head but the idea of humility is this idea where we humble ourselves i like the i like the definition of humility i heard from a teacher years ago where he said uh, a humble person neither thinks too highly nor too lowly of themselves they have an accurate self appraisal because there is such a thing as false humility. Mm-hmm. And those kind of people drive everybody crazy, right? <laughs> when they really have accomplishes in that, accomplishments in that, and you acknowledge that, and it's, oh, shucks, you know, I'm nothing, and all this. Uh, that's baloney. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they can accept that compliment, but recognize that it comes from a God who has equipped them to do everything. And so they're very limited without their creator and, and master uh, enabling them to do what they do. So... Uh, when we humble ourselves, we have an accurate self-assessment, and and we also it's it's opposed to the proud, that the pr- proud people, uh, this doesn't fit with God. He's opposed to the proud. So I don't know. I'm kind of wandering here. Is no, that, you're not. Is that making sense? Yeah, it makes so, a lot of sense. I love the next verse too. He says, "Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Don't be screwing around. Don't be a silly person. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert." Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then Peter says, but resist him firm in your faith, knowing the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers who are in the world. And then great promise, verse 10. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect or complete you, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Mm. Amen. So good. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. My friend Jeff Redorn is with us as well. 877-933-2484 is the text line to let um, let you know that we're looking for your questions. Again, 877-933-2484. Be right back. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? 
Welcome back. It's Ask the Professor time. Dr. Mark Musk is in studio. Also, Jeff Dorn is here with me. He is um, also here to help uh, with some of the questions. I think, Jeff, you might have a question for Mark. I know you do. Well, you're here to help control Bill, right? Yeah, of I course. Mean, right. I can't course. do it. So, and, and Rosie I was sure thinking struggles. about pizza. We were talking about pizza off air. Now I got pizza on oh, my man, mind. Oh, man, you're distracted. Yeah. Thanksgiving Sorry. pizza, yeah, nothing yeah. like it. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, think about it, Jeff. I got another question that just came in about the difference between uh, knowing Jesus versus knowing about Jesus. It sounds yeah. like some people have had some conversations with relatives over the holidays, and they claim that they're a Christian, but they may just know about Jesus. And how do we make that more clear that there is that difference between knowing Jesus and knowing about him? Yeah, this is we get into the thing about having a personal relationship with Christ and with God. Uh, that get, gets ridiculed by some uh, groups. You know, they they say that the scriptures don't talk that way, uh, but it helps, it helps to uh, crystallize that we do come to know Christ as we live our lives with him involved in our lives. And so uh, I like to trace this to the two fundamental things that develop that relationship. Uh, It's communicating with Jesus. So uh, we let him speak to us through his word, and then we talk to him as much as we can and communicate to him through our, our times of conversation with him. And you know, when you when you do that, you read things in the scripture, and then you see the the prayer answered, and uh, that that you have, you make a request before Jesus, you bring it to Him, you talk to Him about it, and here He He answers you, He gives you scripture, or He gives you circumstantial things that answer that. That develops a, a, a knowledge not just about Jesus, but you can you can have the sense that you know Him, you know how He's going to work in your life, and. It's not a slam dunk, of course. It can be a surprise sometimes, but uh, it's it's more than just knowing about him. Hopefully, knowing about him leads us to know him and to be able to uh, uh, anticipate the way he's going to work in our lives and to see his hand working in our lives, even when it may not be exactly what we were looking for, that we still know him enough to know his purposes. Uh, there's a dear friend of ours that uh, both he and his wife graduated from uh, Northwestern here, and they're going through an incredibly difficult week right now. I don't want to share the details of this, but a family member of theirs has suddenly gone into a a coma, and they don't think that uh, this child is going to make it. And so I know that my friend knows Jesus, though. He Mm -hmm. will not... uh, He will not uh, 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 give up he will not surrender to this. He will. God will see him through it. I heard a pastor say it really well. When that suffering and trials comes, either God takes you around it or he takes you through it. But he's with you to take you either way. And that's that's pretty good wisdom right there. Mm-hmm. Here's another question, Mark. Uh, if you would shine some light on 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 2 to 16, when did women <laughs> stop practicing yeah. the head coverings? Thank you for that. This is up there probably in the top five most difficult passages to (laughs) interpret and apply for today. Uh, This is the so-called head-covering passage. Mm -hmm. In the midst of 1 Corinthians here, Paul is answering their questions that they have. He started doing this in chapter 7. And in this case, he's talking to them about worship and how they are to worship God and how that applies to the way they dress and their apparel, their appearance before their brothers and sisters in the church when they gather uh, to worship God. And so 
uh, in chapter 11, he starts out by saying, follow me as I follow Christ. But then he says uh, that be, uh, every man, verse 4, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. So that's talking about in the church context when you're gathered, that if a man has his head covered, uh, it disgraces his head. And then he says, but every woman has her head uncovered while praying and prophesying, disgraces her head, for she is one and the same with a woman whose head is shaved. And so in the context of this first century situation, it appears this way, that this was a way for them to honor God in the way that they dressed. But can you see all the thistles and stones and difficulties coming out of this, especially to apply it today? There are some, and, and there is a very strong application of this that even extends into the 21st century. Many, many, many men, when the church is gathered for worship, they may come in with some sort of hat on today, but almost always when prayer is offered, they'll doff their hats. Mm-hmm. And that comes right from this passage. And there's a bunch of traditions in the church today where women will wear something on their head, a veil, uh, something, a hat or something, and they're doing that to stay in step with this. So they're taking it and saying, maybe this shouldn't be taken so literally, but why should I, is it really that big of a bother to cover my head or for a man to have his head uncovered? So they take it more literally than most of the church. But exactly how do you show this honoring the Lord as a man and as a woman? You throw in what we've been in in the last 30 or 40 years now with the LGBTQ things and transgenderism and self-identification of sex, and it just stirs the pot worse uh, to be able to do this. So uh, I, I wish I could have some nice, neat pathway yeah. through this, but boy, you, you are in for a real uh, tussle to interpret this and then to apply it uh, to life as well. So Mark, how much really is this then a first century cultural thing? Well, it obviously is. The other question is, though, how much of it extends transcendently over the church as a whole. And uh, I'm not I'm not ready to grant that transcendency. Uh, one of the verses that I use to bail, it's my uh, parachute verse to not have to deal with this, <laughs> is that Paul, after he gets done just starting the whole place on fire, he says in uh, verse 16, he says, but if someone is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor does the church of God. And so he says, this is not worth getting yourself all red in the face and yelling at each other about it. So Paul says, I'm, I'm taking this out uh, if, if it goes that way. Mark, let's look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. We, we hear about mm-hmm. love, all these descriptions of love. It's patient, yeah. kind, does not envy. Yep. What are we supposed to understand and walk away with from this passage? I like it in its context, uh, that you have to put together. This is something a Christian struggle with, is to put together the big pieces of the Scripture and understand what Paul's doing overall in these sections. And so I hold to the teaching here that 1 Corinthians 7 through 16, the last half of the passage, he is answering their questions that they have for him. And so in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, he says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So obviously they wrote to him with their questions. Mm -hmm. And they ask him about singleness and marriage here in chapter 7. They ask him about liberty in Christ in chapters 8 through 10. uh, I'm sorry, 8 through 11. And then in chapter 12, look at the way he starts the passage. Same expression. Now concerning spiritual gifts. 
And this runs from chapter 12 to 14. So he's going to talk about the gifts of the Spirit. But I love it that he plops this love chapter right in the middle of that so that they realize all this about giftedness. The Corinthians were proud. They were bragging because they had one gift or another, and they were divisive. They had their factions. They were, you know, typical church at that time. And so (laughs) Paul wants to bring him in here a little bit to say, okay, you've got these gifts. That's great. But if you don't exercise these gifts in love, you're doing harm. You're not doing good. Just because you have the gift doesn't mean you're going to use it properly. He instructs them on how to use these gifts. That tells you you can misuse the gift. And it also tells you you've got control of the gift. But look what he says at the beginning of chapter 13. He says, well, at the end of chapter 12, he says in verse 31, earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. And then look what he says. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, don't have love, I become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Nothing wrong with the gift of tongues, but if it isn't exercised in love, all you're doing is racket. You're just making noise. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So he's saying this has to be the earmark of the church, that you love each other, that you're united in love. And in that context, let everyone exercise their gifts for the building up of the body. That's what he develops in the next chapter. He talks about that's the whole purpose of these gifts. Gifts is to build up and encourage the body with them. So it just flows so beautifully for, through those chapters. And, mm-hmm. it's, and sometimes we just jump in right in the middle and don't realize where we're, where we're at. Boy, and, we could, we could use a brush up on that, couldn't we? Mm-hmm. Loving one another. You think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of the most convicting passages to me has always been that love keeps no record of wrong. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you not keep a record of wrong and forgive others as Christ has forgiven us? It's it's a work of God. I don't know if we have the ability to do it. That uh, Paul describes the deeds of the flesh uh, in uh, Galatians five, and it includes all this resentment and all that business. And uh, the fruit of the Spirit, though, is patience, kindness, and gentleness. Mm. I think the key to it is what Paul develops in both Ephesians and Colossians, though, where he uses language in Ephesians 4 and in Colossians 3, he uses language of dressing yourself, where he says, all these things, take them off, is quite literally what he's saying. Uh, Envy, uh, jealousy, anger, bitterness, resentment, lay them aside, take them off, undress them. And then he says, clothe yourself with love, kindness, forgiveness, just as you have been forgiven, forgive others. And I love that imagery that sometimes we have to do that. Now, what does that mean? I sense the idea is when we lay aside these things and undress ourselves of this bitterness, wrath, anger, malice, and that, that means we renounce it. We are not going to tolerate it in our minds and our hearts. You can't help but think it, but you can help dwelling on it. And so, yeah, you see the person that's hurt you, and boy, that flashes there of that anger. But then what are you going to do about it? Are you going to sit there and and just stew on it? No murmuring. 
are you going to renounce it and say, Lord Jesus, through the strength that the Spirit gives me, help me to clothe myself with love and kindness and forgiveness toward this person? I love the old Indian thing that's out there where they used to say that you uh, you can't help birds flying over your head, but you can help having them make a nest in your hair. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty good. For you and me, we have to use a little imagination. Yeah, imagination, for but sure. But the point is, you can't help it when these thoughts come in your head. They're gonna, that's going to happen. And sometimes it goes on for a long time before that grip of bitterness loosens itself. But you can do something about what you're going to dwell on. Uh, one of my, I, I'm going on here, but one of my favorite people for this was Corey Ten Boom, the uh, woman, the, the Dutch woman who suffered with her sister in a German concentration camp. They were horrible to her sister until she finally died. And, and uh, Corey had hatred for these people, but yet she found it in her heart to forgive them. But she said, but it still would boil out every once in a while. And mm-hmm. I had to renounce it again and again and again. Just because you say, I don't want that in your life, doesn't mean your emotions will be healed. And that, honestly, when people really have suffered severely, I think that's the place for uh, therapy and people to come alongside that really have studied the mind and the, and the emotions and that. And they can help a lot to release that stuff, to let it go. One of my favorite Corey Ten Boom lines is, don't hold on to anything too tightly because it hurts too much when God pries your hand open. Yeah, she was something. She was amazing. Yeah, just this little granny kind of looking person, but wow, she, yeah. when she opened her mouth, you kept quiet and you listened. You know, <laughs> she take, was something. We'll take one more break. Dr. Mark Muska is in studio, as is my friend Jeff Dorn. We will uh, come back with your questions. Let me know what they are, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Be right back. here as well and we're asked the professor so questions would go to 877-933-2484 of course mark jeff there every church wants growth every ministry wants growth everybody is focused on growth and the growth is a good thing yeah uh, but jesus spent three years with 12 guys and when judas dropped out of the lineup they replaced him with matthias so we don't hear much about him mm-hmm. but it seems that after the resurrection he could have grown that group of 12 to a group of 212 if he wanted, or 2012. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking that would have been, uh, from a growth standpoint, a smart move. Yeah, you got to figure out what growth is and how that's going to take place. And so uh, I like that Jesus' strategy when he walked the earth was, yeah, he he really poured into those 12, but he also ministered to the, the crowds. So it wasn't like he was just off in some corner with the 12. He was teaching, and it was public, and a lot of people were being influenced, thousands at times. And so I don't know if it's an either-or uh, thing with with that, but 
you are right, though, to say that uh, this this is a very intensive time with Jesus, with those 12. And I think we can point to many of the miracles he did and the things he taught were directed more toward the 12 than toward the crowds. Uh, that uh, that comes through in several of, of Jesus' miracles. But the idea of church growth, uh, this is something the church is getting smarter, I think, with, is that it's not just the numbers, even though that's the most blatant, obvious way that you can measure a healthy church is how many people are involved with it. I don't think that's true, but that's the most objective thing that's out there. What else are you supposed to use? But uh, Jesus, uh, he uh, he prepared these men, and then they went, and they uh, prepared other men, and this th- thing started to multiply. Uh, this is the idea behind the discipleship idea in the Scriptures, that you have this time to reproduce your own ministry and your own content in the lives of a, a smaller group. And for most of us, 12 is way too many. It's uh, Navigators, for example, has have... You know, you find your man, find your woman, one-on-one kind mm-hmm. of passing on the faith to somebody else who then will able be able to pass it on to somebody else. Uh, Paul, uh, the rallying cry for this is Paul in Second Timothy 2, where he's talking to Timothy, his disciple, and he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So there's four generations there. He says, you, second generation, from me, entrust it to faithful men, third, who will teach others, fourth, also. So this has to be a part of this if we're going to see strong uh, Christians being built and not just speaking to the masses. Anybody who's been in any kind of large church gathering realizes you can hide out there real easily and, and not really uh, be uh, influenced much by what's going on. But get in a small group with people and that whole thing changes. It's it's a very much a different thing. So Didn't, it, didn't the church, it did grow though. I mean, 3,000 were did. added to their numbers one day. The gospel yep. went out to Asia Minor, but the apostles didn't grow, but they had specific, unique powers Mm -hmm. in their life, right? Right. And uh, if Paul is any illustration of this, he did appoint leaders in the church on his missionary trips. That's especially true in Acts 13 and 14, where he went back through the churches in the Asia region there and appointed elders in every church so that they would be able to get on their feet and continue to grow. Personally, I think this still is one of the greatest challenges of the church is to sustain itself multi-generationally that you have these red-hot ministries, and then the generation changes, and they just kind of peter out. And what is it that makes these movements continue generation after generation? Uh, That's a really good question. All right. I think, Jeff, you had a question, did you? Well, I was just thinking about this church growth, and I think about how some churches try to do what you just described to make themselves attractive, but uh, the message doesn't ever change, does it? Well, it, the message, the content does it, but sometimes the vehicle to to explain it does. Uh, so much of the message of the gospel and of growing in Christ is illustrated, or there are an- analogies. Jesus used a bunch of them in the first century. And for us, 
for us to talk about a farmer going out to sow feed, you know, that's a, a sow seed in his field, that's an abstraction to most of the people alive today that are Christians because we're not farmers. So there are ways to be able to connect with the contemporary setting. There's a wonderful young evangelist out there that I really have a lot of respect for, and he talks about with the renewal and regeneration that takes place in your life, it's like a reset or that you, uh, he uses computer language, you reboot mm-hmm. or you reset your life. And that's terrific, you know. So he's using the same message is there about regeneration and a new life in Christ, but he's using fresh connecting kinds of analogies to make his point. And so uh, in that way, the message changes all the time because we have to connect with the people we're talking with. So we can call ourselves a rebooted Christian instead of a born again like Christian. It. I like it. Or people use Facebook language too. That you know, Jesus doesn't want you to just put a like with him. He wants you to put a follow with him, <laughs> and that and all it connects. People yeah. understand it. They do yeah. that all the time when they are in social media. So that's that's good stuff. Rebooted with a new operating system. Something. Something. Yeah, yeah new heart. Go with it, Jeff. I mean, don't stop now. Just right. uh, you know, right? That that sounds like a, a good, effective message. One of the most Googled verses in the last year was Philippians 4, 7, and the peace mm-hmm. of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a promise. That's a fantastic promise. It is. How do we understand and know that, that, our, that, we, that we have that confidence, that understanding that our hearts and minds are guarded? Yeah. Well, you first of all got to read it so that you know it. A lot of the time, people don't read these promises enough, and so they live like spiritual paupers. They beg God for this kind of thing when he says, it's there for you. So, And I like the first part in Philippians 4 there, where he talks about uh, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So that means talk to God about everything. I love what, uh, uh, what was his name, Taylor, who wrote the Living Bible. He translated that, be anxious for nothing, but with thanksgiving, you know, ask God for everything. He says, don't worry about anything, pray about everything. And that's exactly what Paul's saying there. And so we come to the Lord and we talk to him and really talk to him. Don't feel like it has to be stained glass language, but talk to God like he's your friend and your companion. And if you're upset, tell him. If you're confused, if you're sad, tell him. He can handle it. And sometimes we put this wall up because we think we have to have our hands folded and our eyes closed and bowed head or kneeling or something. And uh, that takes the very relational part of it out of it for a lot of people. So nothing wrong with any of that stuff unless it makes a barrier between you and God. So... But the constant presence of the Lord in your life throughout the day is mm-hmm. really how we should live mm-hmm. with constant prayer throughout the day. I, I don't want to insult women here, but it's almost like having a Gabby sister where you talk and it's just constant talk that's going on. <laughs> you can't have anything less than an hour and a half phone conversation yeah. with her. Because yeah, Mark Muska said that, talks. not Bill Arnold. Yeah, uh, okay. Bill said that too. No, Mark Muska uh, said that. <laughs> it could be the, I should make it gender inclusive, Gabby brother. Too. Yeah, there you go, so, that's better. But it, I, I don't think God puts down the phone and shakes his head and says, you know, when is he going to shut up? Uh, Every single thing that we've got on our mind, God is available and he loves us and he's interested. He's promised that. So 
uh, go ahead and gab with God. That is a that is a great idea. I really like that. That's a very strong way to start wrapping up uh, today. Is to be mindful of God desires your fellowship and and that we can come to Him with everything, whether it's anger or frustration or praise or worship. All of that can come right. Come as you are. As you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Jeff, thanks for sticking around. Oh, really you nice bet. To, yeah, good talking to you. Yep. It's almost mm-hmm. like he had a radio job today. Yeah, I did. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. you know. Now he's going to want to be paid, though. <laughs> no, 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 that's not going to happen. Not anytime soon. No. So, um, I, I tell you what, Jeff, I'll I'll pay you twice as much as I get. <laughs> I, just got, I just doubled my salary there. You did? Yeah, yeah. that's a big zero. <laughs> big <you>. zero. <laughs> well, thank you once again, both of you, for being a part of the show today. It's really been great. And thank you uh, for listening today. I always love it. And remember, today is Giving Tuesday, and there's a, really a, quite a global generosity movement, which is just unleashing the power of people and organizations to transform their communities and the world. Did you know that Giving Tuesday is the biggest giving day of the year across 75 countries all over the world? Wow. So if you stood up today and supported your favorite cause, God bless you. Uh, we always are so appreciative of any giving that happens to Faith Radio. So thank you for doing that. Our winter fundraiser starts next week. So if hmm. you want to give now, you can certainly do that. You can go to 877, text the word GIVE to 877-933-2484. Looking forward to spending time with you tomorrow. Have a great night, everyone. As you lay your head on the pillow, know that God is working out his great plan in your life, and he loves you. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.